back in about uh, 1993, I uh, I ended up um, getting out of uh, Orbital. That was a company I was working at. I'd worked at uh, started at Space Data when I was in back in 1998 and, or 1988, and to about 1990. That's about the time that I actually ended up shifting over from what I was doing before, which was receiving and inspection and all this other quality assurance type stuff over to, uh, to programming. <coughs> and it was about, uh, 1993, I ended up uh, taking a voluntary severance from Orbital so I could actually go over to, uh, attend Arizona State University where I ended up, uh, applying to and rushed, um, the Pi Kappa Alpha, Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity, which was the jock fraternity and ended up, um, more or less getting in with that as I ended up uh, trying to also get into the computer science program over at ASU. Now, the computer science program at that point wasn't wholly mature for the most part. There was, uh, I ended up asking one of the professors about something called um, interrupts, which was specific to uh, Intel programming and uh, Intel assembler level type stuff and everything and he ended up referring to me to a Motorola specific chipset uh, manual to resolve the problem which Motorola actually didn't have interrupts with it so I was really kind of blown away you know by some of the early preliminary support that I ended up uh, not getting with uh, some of the questions that I was asking and everything and at this point I was declared as a liberal arts major um, specifically, I was uh, focusing on psychology, but that's actually not what I wanted to pursue. I was more interested in pursuing computer science. So, while I uh, while I was doing this, I was signed up for engineering core classes. Um, digital design fundamentals was one. Another one was um, calculus. Another one was physics. And these these classes are no joke. Uh, I was just really kind of taken aback by how exceedingly difficult these classes were. Uh, one professor for calculus, uh, the first professor, Dr. Lajwan, um, he was from two countries I can't, I still don't remember the name of, I can't pronounce the name of either, and not only that, but uh, I couldn't understand jack shit of what the guy was talking, you know, what, what he was saying and everything. It, it's almost like he spoke a foreign language, and the entire session of 50 or 55 minutes, which met uh, four times a week, um, and also had a lab with it too. Calculus was a five credit hour course that, uh, or was it four? It was four or five. It was definitely more than three. So I think it was four or five. So it met five times a week and had a lab with it associated with it as well. And we had just a shitload of homework that was, that was associated with it. Well, calculus, um, it just didn't sink in. And physics, while it sunk in, particularly laboratory type work and everything sunk in, um, the thing that I really had a, a difficult time with was memorization of the formulas. And calculus was kind of an expectation that you would actually memorize all the formulas that you're given. So whether or not it was uh, derivatives and integrals and um, summations and all this other kind of stuff and everything, when you went to go differentiate something, you were expected to remember how all this, this stuff functioned and everything. And I just wasn't good at it. You know, I just had a bitch of a time with it. It didn't come naturally to me at all. Now, computers did. You know, so for me, the difference between the two was like night and day, where digital design fundamentals was easy. You know, here I am um, getting into digital design fundamentals, and it's basically Boolean mathematics and everything. 
So it's ones and zeros. It's um, ands. It's ors. So when you take a one and a one in computing terms, you end up with one. When you take a one and a zero, you end up with a zero. When you take a one or a zero, you end up with a one. So, anyways, this is actually what the digital design fundamentals is, is basically getting into the, the fundamentals of what creates a digital system. And, uh, but uh, going back to the physics and the um, calculus, the thing that, that, didn't, um, that I didn't fully comprehend at the time was the difference between the analog world versus the dig digital world. Now, I had a firm grasp with the digital world. You know, I'd been playing video games. I'd been programming since I was 11. You know, um, I understood it uh, pretty well, probably better than most people that what actually went through a program on it. And uh, for me, I started realizing this as I ended up taking, uh, you know, programming classes. And I'm just like, oh, shit, this stuff's, you know, elementary. It's basic for me. This is stuff that I, I did when I was 14 years old. So for me, it was, it was actually too easy. But um, but the analog world, particularly taking um, discrete functions, you know, so remembering discrete type mathematical functions and discrete values, such as calculus uh, or such as um, the speed of light, and uh, or frictional constants, uh, gravity, nine point eight meters per second that it moved as a downward force and everything, I had a very very difficult time. Um, committing these things to memory because the analog world to me seemed so much more dynamic you know so I ended up uh, going through these classes and then and uh, I didn't even get into um, calc 3 which I was supposed to with my computer science course and everything um, I just ended up failing uh, calc, uh, calc 1 or calc 1 I failed it twice and ended up uh, passing on the third try and uh, calc 2 fortunately I made it through the uh, first time but by then I had already failed physics on my third try and I ended up getting booted out of uh, out of Arizona State University altogether and um, it just came down to I just it's it's not that I didn't try it's just that um, well my priority certainly was getting laid and actually you know having fun with women that was primarily you know my focus the secondary focus was um, I I just I I saw possibility and potential with uh, with what I was doing and the capability to be able to achieve success without having that degree behind me. So what ended up happening at that point is I ended up uh, getting out of ASU after only a year and uh, ended up uh, taking off to become a full-time worker. My first job that I ended up getting out um, after this um, was uh, over at U-Haul uh, where I ended up uh, following my buddy Mike Moore into uh, the program or into, uh, into that place. And, you know, he ended up uh, giving me a referral. He had worked with me over at Orbital. And he had been hired at Orbital as a junior programmer in about 1990 at about the same time. Actually, at, at exactly the same time. They had been given the authority to, uh, to hire four, what was it, four people. Um, and I was the only, um, the only one that was lacking a degree when I ended up going in, into this position and everything for, for the four junior programmer positions. 
The other three of them, um, Andy Claypool, Tim Newman, and Mike Moore, all three of them, um, had just freshly graduated uh, college, uh, graduated university, and this was their first job outside of uh, college and everything. Me, um, I had a history in programming. I had hacked and uh, understood things from a hacking perspective. And uh, at first, I didn't get much respect from, in particular, Tim Newman when I uh, when I ended up getting this position over there. And uh, Tim... Tim was more of a structured man and everything, and, you know, for me, I was able to think on my feet a lot faster and a lot better and everything. So between the two of us, we ended up butting heads quite a bit, but uh, as as I quickly found out, the the boss, uh, Gary Sprudy and Todd Bjerke, they preferred actually leveraging me, you know, for the work activities and that kind of stuff. So... It was just the type of thing that um, when I ended up going through ASU, I, I at this point had started ASU just because I saw that my credentials weren't, my lack of credentials were held against me by, you know, some people that I, I actually respected. And it wasn't just them, it was other people. And as I attended ASU, I started realizing that, you know, I mean, I know more than most of these people around me. And it's not that I'm, I think I'm special or anything like that, but I also knew that I can make it with, uh, in this field without actually having a, de a degree. So at this point, I ended up uh, turning around. I ended up, um, you know, getting that job at U-Haul and, you know, er everything as, uh, is, you know, is under water under bridge after then. So what, um, but the thing that I still pondered on for a long time afterwards was I got into algebra, I got into trigonometry, I got into um, cal uh, to algebra, geometry, trigonometry, and uh, college algebra. All of it seemed like it was pretty structured and pretty easy. Now, college algebra, um, I started having a little bit of a problem with when it came down to polynomial polynomials. And... Um, it wasn't necessarily, it, it just came down to a lack of, of application. I didn't understand how, how these things could be applied in the real world. And as a result, I just ended up uh, having a little bit more of a difficult time. And college algebra was the first mathematics that I ended up getting, um, at that point, anything less than an A. And then all of a sudden, I got into calculus, and it's just like, what the fuck? I just, I just couldn't, for the life of me, understand it. Well, it took me years to understand, you know, the differences between analog, the analog world versus a digital world. Uh, the the problems that I had, you know, when it came down to the physics and the calculus, um, was a was a problem with my underlying thinking. Um, and, and I'm not saying that it's necessarily a problem. Um, it just comes down to my brain wasn't wired that way. You know, it's still not wired that way. Now, I can think around through and, and basically everything that I couldn't do in calculus and physics before is actually extremely easy for me now. You know, it's, it's a night and day difference. You know, but it, it came down to the way that I had to attack and approach the problem was really just substantially different than most everybody else. I had to do it from a rational, linear perspective and everything. So, and this, uh, this, you know, um, David again, thank you for, you know, getting into tonight's conversation and everything. It's, it's, uh, it's about the concepts that I learned when it came down to 
the the internet, the way it works, and some of the things I've discovered in the last 10 years about technology as a whole. Um, and uh, it, it comes down to discrete versus, versus analog behavior. So, to give you an example, um, one thing that, that's actually discrete in nature is an iPod. You know, I've got this iPod Touch right now, which is taking my voice, my analog voice, as I talk out loud. And that's taking my analog voice, taking samples, uh, I think it's about 44,100 cycles per second. It's that many samples. And it's, it, it at that point, takes, uh, takes samples of everything from the pitch to the tone. Um, and at that point, it translates it to a binary value and that binary value zeros and ones and it actually commits it to this thing called an iPod and this iPod at that point uh, saves it when I, f when I end up hitting stop on the record button it saves it in a format uh, it's a condensed format that uh, is a format called an mp3 and uh, there's several different uh, forms of saving voice data, um, but that voice data, it's always sampled. So it's basically, it's like chopping, chopping something up into 44,000 separate pieces during a single second. And at that point, um, it, it ends up taking that and, and sampling that and it, it, for the most part it's actually it, it says 44,000 Hertz I don't think it's actually running that fast and everything so but the simple fact is it's taking when you whenever you do something with a digital device it'll take an image or a a sound and it'll take it into and slice it up into any number of different slices on a per second basis and it'll take that sample and actually commit it to an encoded format and that encoded format is standardized um, typically it's mp3 and and wave file uh, or now just lately they've been doing orbis and they've had aac format for apple um, it's it's been a number number of things, but MP3 is pretty much the bigger standard that's actually for distribution distribu distributing music and that kind of stuff. So that MP3 file is actually saved, and it it contains a series of samples that are actually contained in a row in a chronological row. And at that point, that's actually what's used to actually form the 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 appearance of consistent audio. So. That's something that um, that calculus itself was pretty obvious about. You know, it made it pretty easy to understand. You know, when you're dealing with something, a, a sample of something over X period of time and everything. Well, you take that sample and you slice it into however many different samples that you want. And and basically, the more that you slice something, and the more that you're able, capable of of taking that information in, the the more rich it sounds, the more um, the better the tone, the better, the more analog it sounds. But it's still a duplication of the original. It's not the original. It's a duplication of the original. You know, so translating that to zeros and ones, storing it in binary format and everything, is is not is nothing more than a sample of the original analog thing. So 
And that's something I understood pretty much from the get-go when it came down to uh, to doing some of the basics in calculus. You know, calculus would deal with uh, slopes and curves and and all this other funky stuff and everything. And uh, physics would get, would start getting into frictional forces and this, this kind of stuff, all of which was relatively easy for me. Um, but uh, actually memorizing the formulas for both calculus and uh, physics, I ended up uh, always carrying a cheat sheet just because that's, you know, I had a bitch of a time remembering things. So I just ended up carrying a cheat sheet and that's ac actually how I ended up getting by those classes. Sure, you may call it unscrupulous, but for the most part, you know, the way I looked at it is I was interested, I was definitely interested in understanding this stuff, you know, but when it came down to committing it to memory, um, it, for me, it, it just, it, it wasn't practical, you know, and uh, at this point I ended up, um, I, I had already started by this point embarking on a process of trying to understand my own mind more you know I'd started that process literally when I was about 13 or 14 years old you know so why you know calculus and physics why I had such a bitch of a time remembering things like that and I could remember digits and phone numbers pretty easily you know but <coughs> formulas like that for some reason they just wouldn't stick in my head and I didn't know why now there's there's something called e e e e eidetic memory, I think is how it's uh, pronounced. And uh, what it means is uh, somebody has the capability to look at something, say a sheet of paper, and instantly they can memorize everything on that paper and, and to some degree um, photographically recall this information. So if somebody asks them, you know, what they saw on a piece of paper, at that point, boom, they have the capability to be able to turn around and literally mention every everything that was on that piece of paper from squigglies to you know to the formulas that are written on it to names numbers it doesn't matter what it is they they can recreate the entire thing at least verbally you know by as if they have a picture in their mind and they're actually looking at that picture in their mind you know of this thing well i had um i had a friend uh, spencer who He'd had the same kind of memory, or similar kind, of, similar kind of memory, when it came down to uh, remembering movie quotes. He could watch a single movie one time. All it took was one time, and he could, even if he didn't like the movie, he could remember the movie and, and the lines and who said what for the entire thing. And I would, I would pop quiz him on it on occasion. You remember this scene where somebody said, yeah, and he'd go on and he'd, he'd recite this huge fucking monologue, you know, telling me everything that just happened. And I'm just like, going, you got to be shitting me. You know, me, I, I, had a, I took an acting class way back when, um, back when I was uh, shortly after, it was about 90, 94, because I still continued taking night classes after I dropped out of ASU and everything. And I went to Mesa Community College and a number of other community colleges over in the Phoenix area. So I went to Mesa Community College, I went to Scottsdale Community College, I went to Paradise Valley Community College, um, you name it, I went to community colleges in the area just to continue my education, my pursuit of education, and uh, try to further myself, and, and maybe one day achieve that bachelor's degree and have those credentials under, underneath my belt and everything. So, at, at this point, um, 
you know, so Spencer being able to do this and and me having knowledge of other people that had actually had these incredible memories and everything, um, I constantly came to question why is it I had a difficult time remembering things like this. You know, I also came to question uh, the nature of reality itself and, you know, why, um, why it's called a constant. You know, and not only that, but uh, I was taught uh, the speed of uh, light was 186 miles per second back in, in grade school, you know, and yet that number seems to be moving when it comes down to correlation to, uh, to, uh, to kilometers per second. Now, I've never heard the, um, the number revised backwards. Uh, well, of course, I have for people that have translated it back to miles per second and everything trying to claim that the uh, kilometers per second is this is the worldwide standard and everything you know but for me i've always analogized the speed of light as being 186 or always memorized the speed of light as being 186 mile thousand miles per second so anyways um in in a grander sense uh, I'm going to get into the digital versus the analog type stuff and everything and some things I've discovered on on that. But uh, before I, I go off and embark a little bit more on that that thing, um, I, I watched, uh, I like keeping the podcast and just basically keeping like um, a personal diary, you know, what I did today um, or the things that have been meaningful and everything that have happened. I'm going to keep on making that kind of like a, a regular thing. I was doing it on the blogs, but uh, I've been tired of writing and more in the mood to uh, code lately, so the desire to write hasn't been there as much, and I've been enjoying expressing myself verbally. It's actually made a little bit of difference in my life. Um, so yeah, I watched Incredibles 2 today. Uh, I, I watched the first half hour of it yesterday. I wasn't in the mood for it, and today I finished watching it. And it's a decent flick. Um, it's nowhere near as much fun as Inside Out was, or Inside... I think it, yeah, Inside Out was for the other Pixar movie I just recently watched last week. Uh, that movie was just phenomenal. Incredibles 2 is good, don't get me wrong. Um, I played the video game itself, too, and I finished that up about two months ago. And the video game uh, by Pixar that actually has the Incredibles and the cars in it and Toy Story, Ratatouille, um, also up in it, is fucking awesome. It's uh, for adults and for kids, I highly recommend it. It's just the type of game that it's fun, it's, it's active, it's... Uh, I mean... You just play, you basically you play a character in each uh, in the Pixar games. You play a character from the respective area from movie that uh, that you're in. So in Ratatouille, you play the play the main rat, and in Incredibles, you can play Mr. Incredible himself or any number of the other other characters and everything. And uh, you're more or less running through a three-dimensional recreation of parts of, uh, of scenes and everything that uh, might be contained within their worlds. And you're just, you know, in Ratatouille, you're going through France and through this whole sequence of different things that uh, eventually you're trying to, you know, there's one part that you've actually got to get through the kitchen and, and uh, there's an inspector that uh, he's inspecting the food and he's, you know, he's going to flunk it and basically close the restaurant if you don't, uh, if you as a rat don't team up with the other rats to basically take care of the place and everything. Uh, cars is great because you've got a speed course that you've got to run through and it's just such a fun game. And, uh, but, uh, Incredibles 2, uh, from a, 
you know, from a sit and watch perspective and everything, it's it's still good. You know, it's still a well told story and everything, and uh, I definitely appreciate it and everything. I I'm I, I put down on my Facebook uh, status that I, I'm a lover of all things Pixar, and um, that's really kind of the truth. I mean, I I've had <coughs> almost I can't think of anything I've picked up by Pixar that I haven't I haven't really enjoyed. So love them. They've been doing good stuff and everything, and while Incredibles 2 is a, is a decent installment and everything to their franchise, it's not the best work that they've done, but it's really, really good work. So, that Inside Out was really just, it kind of ruined it for me. They just did so good on that one. So, um, the other one that I, uh, I ended up picking up, I got done watching uh, Sabrina, uh, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina last week. So there's 10-part series that uh, Netflix, I think, is actually doing. And it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's decent. I, I like, um, at first I didn't, didn't like the whole Satanistic uh, perspective and everything. But then I kind of let go of my expectations, and I said, "Look, you know, I've never really listened to alternative perspectives when it comes down to, um, you know, Satanism and that kind of stuff and everything. And I've never really been receptive to it. And I can't say I'm I'm receptive to it now, but I can say I understand a little bit more of the perspectives and everything. And um, you know, Wiccan itself and witchcraft altogether has many, many, many different perspectives. And this part perspective in particular um, has them has the origin of their power is emanating from the Dark Lord, aka Satan, aka um, uh, I mean they didn't refer to him as Lucifer, but you know, aka the same type of being and everything. And uh, this being is a goat-headed. Um, you know, horned creature that actually walks upright and and like a man, like a man and everything, and exists in the minds and that kind of stuff. Now, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is dark. It's a, uh, it's brooding. It's um, the the characters in it. They do a pretty good job with the character development and everything. But uh, in a general sense, um, it and Charm both are definitely kind of cold flicks. They're they're not intended to be emotional. Um, they're definitely on the dark side and that kind of stuff. And uh, the way I looked at it was, well, I mean, <coughs> it's interesting without hesitation. So, But I wanted to actually see the origin of Sabrina. And uh, so I ended up downloading the first season of Sabrina the Witch as it appeared, I think, is on Nickelodeon or something like that. So I watched the first episode of that today. Now, I had always flipped through the channels before, and whenever I saw Sabrina the Witch, and I just always, the first thing I would hear is the laugh track, and I would just flip past it. It was just, for me, too cheesy. You know, and the laugh track for me has always been something that I have a hard time with, you know, the contrived laughter and that kind of stuff. But now I've just been basically taking time to, to more or less try to overlook um some some things, the elements that might immediately make me turn the channel, and uh, instead to focus on the things that I want to actually um, have more of in my life. Well, laughter is certainly one of them, without hesitation. You know, so I'm making it a fact to be more receptive to things that actually might introduce more laughter. Um, and perspectives for laughter too. Um, the other thing that uh, that I'm also really, you know, firmly important for these three shows altogether: Charm, Sabrina, and uh, 
I, I, even you know the prior versions of, of Charmed as well with Alyssa Milano is the magic different perspectives on magic so as you know I've been doing you know some of the spell stuff and everything here and trying to trying to conjure up my own version of Jackie and everything but there's a little bit more to it than that you know I'm just wanting to understand I mean I played Worlds of Warcraft and EverQuest for years and one of the problems I had with playing caster classes on um, both of these games was I'm I'm a three-dimensional person in an analog world um, playing with a computer through a two-dimensional screen leveraging a discrete system um, that's actually interacting with beings that uh, in themselves they could be three-dimensional um, they could be for all intents and purposes they could be analog as well but I'm I'm interacting with them as if they're um, discrete uh, beings and I'm also interacting with them as uh, as two-dimensional creatures that are actually on my screen. So it's not one and the same, you know. It's I'm receiving a translation of their world and everything, you know, through a two-dimensional two screen. And in my three-dimensional world, leveraging a mouse and a keypad and that kind of stuff, um, it really lacks. And I I always played. Uh, using hotkeys and that kind of stuff, but there were some classes, you know, particularly some of the damage classes and that kind of stuff, a mage and um, other things like that, the enchanter, where lightning fast reactions and that kind of stuff, really, I never could understand how some of the other characters could be so fucking fast with their responses inside these games. And uh, how how me even with the keyboard and the mouse and being pretty highly skilled with it too, I could never really seem to react in the same same manner in the same speed that that other people uh, could. You know, and I consi consider myself pretty highly proficient with video games and everything. So, in any case, um, it's it's really. Looking at magic in these games, it's always depicted as war-oriented. It's always depicted as, uh, well, with uh, some exceptions, such as the Enchanter, where you can charm creatures, and when you first got into the game, you can actually charm other players. Um, but they've since eliminated that. Um, you can heal, you can do things like that and everything, but in a general sense, magic is absolutely constricted and con contained, you know, within these gaming environments and everything to be strictly to do with interactions and particular things that are actually more combat oriented. Now, I'm sure there's some spells that you can actually cast on fellow fellow players, you know, and uh, typically it requires you to duel so you can actually land a fireball on somebody or do a lightning bolt or a moon moonbeam or something like that, a moonfire on one of them. Um, but in general, or uh, in order to throw thorns on somebody or something like that, they'll actually make, or a shield, or there's other more defensive type spells that you can throw on somebody. But in general sense, magic for me is, is and has been something that's been more about the entertainment. It's like fireworks to gunpowder. You know, sure, you can use gunpowder to actually create firearms and that kind of shit, but I'll be honest with you, you know, the entertainment I've gotten from gunpowder hasn't been with firearms, it's been with watching fucking fireworks. You know, the entertainment with gunpowder has been, you know, seeing, um, you know, some of the the sticks and everything, and or hanging out over, at, uh, uh, over in Mexico and getting an M80 and, you know, just basically putting it in, uh, in a trash can and 
and blowing things, you know, blowing things up in it. But for me, it's never been about the destruction or, or the wanton destruction of, of people and property. It's been about more having fun and trying things out and, and seeing the reactions of things and that kind of stuff. That, for me, is actually an analogy to magic. You know, I, I haven't had the same kind of capabilities to be able to see magic in the real world. You know, um, in the same way that, uh, that it, you know, could be presented like fireworks would be to gunpowder. You know, and I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that the depiction of magic is, is in, for the most part, has remained the province of war at least as depicted in fictional devices and that kind of stuff. So that's actually why I'm starting to pick up these shows. I realize I haven't exposed my own mind, you know, to the possibilities. Now, that exposure of my own mind, you know, to the alternatives and everything couldn't itself actually alter the real world to basically introduce this kind of stuff. So, in any case, um, I started watching uh, Charmed, uh, or I'm sorry, Sabrina, the very first episode today. First time I've ever actually sat down and watched the pilot show where Sabrina discovers that she's a witch and she ends up uh, going and consorting with the, uh, with the time guys uh, who end up being none other than Penn and Teller on the first episode and they end up saying okay Sabrina we'll go ahead and rewind time so you can replay your day and not make a fool of yourself in school and I thought how cool I mean from the from the start it's such a um, a more amenable more friendly more personal personable show that's depicting magic in a in an interesting way where sure she messes up and and when she messes up on doing the spell and everything it's not blood and color she ends up messing up on a spell and turns somebody into pineapple by accident you know so it's it's cute it's it's whimsical it's just like okay i like this a lot better you know than than the shit that's been presented with magic in in the last uh at least uh as you know through the episodes i've been seeing and everything where, I mean, sure, Charmed is actually kind of cool because it'll show, you know, the girls that uh, they try to stop a spill or something like that. And they're more utilitarian and function and everything than, than actually playful and that kind of stuff. And that's actually, you know, why I started watching Sabrina. So I think I'm going to enjoy that show and I'll probably watch like uh, one of those shows a day until I actually do the same thing that I did with Twilight Zone and watched all of them. So, anyways, um, this, uh, you know, that... It, the thing for me, it just uh, comes down to the whole, there was something George Bush said years ago, and pretty much everybody ended up mocking a dude when he ended up making a comment about the internet's plural. Uh, there's another comment that Al Gore said years ago, that uh, he ended up making a comment about how he invented the internet. Now, while everybody else was so busy mocking these two, you know, for their lack of knowledge about the real world, and I'm doing in air quotes, the quote-unquote real world, I started actually looking at these speech patterns, and I started really start, begin, I began to ask questions. You got some really smart people here. I mean, I know how fucking hard it is to pursue an education and everything, and that these people... These aren't, these aren't dummies. 
You know, I mean, I myself, I've I've worked with people with with high degrees of uh, education. I've I've met plenty of people that have JDs and you know law degrees from around the world, and and it's I mean, I've applied for the you know take the LSAT twice, and I actually tried getting into law school myself, and I ended up getting passed over. At least, sure, it was by a tier one university, and number one in the world for international management um, or international law you know, over to Georgetown, you know, but the fact of the matter was, I, I had seen early on, uh, that the, some of these leaders were regularly getting mocked, and I began to question the childlike nature of it, you know, so the whole thing, it all started with, uh, Bill Clinton, and when Bill Clinton ended up, uh, getting a blowjob by Monica Lewinsky, um, I rooted for the guy, and not only that, but the interesting thing for me was I had been a pretty damn good study when it came down to uh, um, the whole oh, uh, body language. My ex-wife had turned me on, uh, Lisa, had turned me on to uh, a book called Emotional Intelligence. And uh, she had read it, and she enjoyed it, and she thought that I would enjoy it as well. And uh, just because I'm always looking for something that provides different perspective and, and to the reasons why people do what they do you know both her and i we shared our our enjoyment of psychology um together and uh that and, and education her and my mom or my mom i'm sorry me and her mom ended up bonding her mom was a teacher and uh me and her mom we ended up bonding and uh actually ended up taking psychology to the next levels because i enjoyed hearing about education and her mom was a teacher and had been a teacher of uh, grade school children and everything for most of her life so i loved loved hearing about her discussions about the state of the education system here in the united states and what was going wrong um particularly at uh, less um at more uh, problematic schools, you know, lower-end schools and that kind of stuff. And, you know, the more I ended up talking to her about this kind of stuff, the more that I ended up realizing, you know, that, um, that, that there's a lot that goes on, uh, that there's, and that there's a massive disjoint between leadership and what's really going on in the real world. So when Lisa pointed me out to this book on emotional intelligence and everything, and shortly after I ended up, uh, after reading that, I ended up paying a lot more attention to the body language. And this is about the same time that I ended up uh, seeing Bill Clinton in an interview and had his wife behind him. And I saw, I saw that uh, a look about the two that she had actually put him up to doing what he ended up doing with Monica Lewinsky. I realized in two seconds flat that uh, that they had a business partnership um, primarily, a, 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 rela a legal re relationship, and when it came down to it, sexuality and their expression of that with other people was just simply a part of life. 
and I realized, you know, as I as I paid attention, and I at this, at this point started doing a lot more research on the Clintons, and started realizing, you know, that uh, their relationship that she actually ended up having a lover off to the side, and that was pretty standard for her. She was pretty discreet about it, a lot more discreet than uh, than Bill Clinton was about it, you know. But I ended up um, starting to realize that uh, people that are are in positions of power and everything have a massive tendency. To, to treat relationships substantially different than people in the middle and lower classes. So dramatically that, to some degree, sexuality and the expression of love and everything um, is not one and the same as having sex. Well, me and Lisa, we were already approaching this point anyways with our relationship. You know, we, um, I had discussed uh, having the affairs with her, and um, at this point I was really, you know, for her it really wasn't as big a deal as I was making of it. And it was one of those things that we had already discussed having an open relationship as it was. You know, but there was something, you know, to it that I still, it's almost like I had been programmed, societally programmed, and I just had a difficult time kind of swallowing and accepting it. So we ended up getting to the point where that happened, and all of a sudden I saw what happened with the Clintons and with the crucifixion, basically, and it ended up happening uh, because of their their you know, the dealing that they had with the relationship and everything. Well, I had la learned, you know, through my connections and through my sources and everything over the years, that, uh, that Hillary ended up actually pressuring Bill to end up choosing somebody to actually have a relationship with because they both regarded the United States as being... Um, as being naive and infantile when it came down to our, our um, understanding, comprehension, and uh, reflection on, on, our, on our sexuality. And what, uh, what I found out the two had, had more or less agreed on was the concept and idea that the United States um, tended to treat relationships as a possessive relationship. You owned your partner. Your partner owned you. You were property for all intents and purposes. And, and when you ended up leaving that relationship, you were entitled to property as a result of that loss of relationship. And they viewed this as unhealthy. And they made this very clear within, the, you know, within my former workplace and everything at about uh, what their what their motivations were, you know, and part of what they were trying to actually make endure within the intelligence community and everything afterwards. I thought that was intensely interesting, that here they are, you know, a couple that just basically says, we're going to take one for the team. You know, we're going to put ourselves out there. Um, you know, I'm going to play the distressed wife and everything, and uh, and you're going to play the hu the flandering husband, and, and more or less we're going to present ourselves in such a way to make it look like to the American public and everything that, you know, that we're not necessarily bad people, but we're human. That's actually what they were interested in doing, was humanizing themselves. Now, the dehumanization had been happening since JFK. JFK was idolized, despite the fact that he had actually, you know, been with Marilyn Monroe. He was basically martyred when he ended up getting, uh, getting killed. And anything that, that uh, any president did after that couldn't hold up to that man because of his martyred basis and everything. Well, the man had been, you know, cheating on his wife. Everybody knows that with Marilyn Monroe. Um, 
the whole relationship that was going on with with him and, and, and prostitutes in general was well known. Now, nobody looked at this as bad and good, and this certainly isn't going in history books or anything like that. You know, but shortly afterwards, uh, something that had been very common, um, the whole spying on your opposition and everything, actually caused Nixon to step down. Well, there's a lot more reasons for his stepping down and everything than that. You know, but uh, I had seen a trend that had been occurring over the years and everything that started with JFK and proceeded with other uh, other people and everything and really took a, a strong fundamental twist and everything with when it came down to the Clintons and everything that I started seeing this mocking and ridiculing of the presidency and of people that are actually in high positions in leadership and everything um, that was, in my opinion, starting to destabilize the United States as a nation. I didn't like this. You know, I mean, and that's actually among the reasons, reasons I ended up joining the NSA. You know, now, they think, you know, to some degree it was the money, you know, and the pressure that they ended up putting on me, you know, as a result of things. And that's not the truth. You know, I mean, sure, that was that was convenient that I was being offered a million dollars a year for, you know, six to eight years of service that uh, I was required to sign up, you know, to the mil U.S. military in order to basically ensure that I had that kind of time and service and everything. Sure, the money would have been nice, and and to this day, I still think and and believe I deserve it with all the work that I put into the programs and the systems that actually run this nation and everything. However. The thing for me was, I didn't like the way my nation was being represented. And also, I didn't like the way that, uh, and I'm talking about representation from, um, from an intelligence perspective and from a support perspective. I didn't like the way that it was running from a public support perspective and everything, um, and also how the leaders and those people that are actually representing this country are systematically and regularly being torn down. I flat out didn't like it. To this day, I don't fucking like it. Somebody actually wants to talk shit about Trump or something like that, right now, you know what I do? I point him to the fucking door. You know, for me, it's just um, Trump represents a cross-section of America. You know, plain and simple. Most of us are indebted. You know, um, the vast majority of people and everything don't have great education and everything. And the simple fact of the matter is, he represents what the common, what the common person, what the common average is for this nation altogether. Now, if you don't like it, just take a look in the in the mirror. That's what I would say. You know, and and I hear people, and you know, and the funny thing was, I ended up taking a time. There was a a girl I know. I'm not going to name names or anything like that, but. I'm I'm pretty good with Photoshop, and I took a a photo of uh, Trump, and I superimposed it, and did this what I consider beautiful work on making it so it looked like she was actually uh, in in a photo with Trump, and they were actually at the lake, you know. So for me, and I ended up posting it on Facebook. Well, she ended up, she said, I you know she lambasted me completely, went off on me, saying, you know, I. I, I hate Trump, you know, take that shit off of there and everything. Now, this is actually indicative of what I consider to be the massive problem here in the United States. People have a tendency to, to look at the worst thing possible first without taking the time to consider all the work I put in.
I mean, I put I put a, a couple hours into that photo to to you know for me I was training myself on Photoshop and everything and having fun with it and everything. So you know it was just one of those things that uh, for me it was just a playful thing that I ended up it was you know kind of a joke because I knew that she didn't like him, but to the point that she was hated him and fucking loathed him and not only that but was unappreciative of this so much that she would demand me taking it off of Facebook because she didn't want her likeness with being with not her president that's actually her words and I'm just like wow he is your president I mean plain and simple doesn't matter whether or not you want to recognize a guy as such fact of the matter is he is doesn't matter whether or not you showed up at that voting booth or not the fact of the matter is he is and the way I look at it is, if you're not liking this democratic system and everything, get the fuck out. I mean, and that's actually, you know, kind of for me, it's just like, we're, we're a nation, and this is actually what's, what I feel started realistically with the Clintons. The Clintons presented themselves as unrealistic, or as, um, uh, not necessarily unrealistic, as realistic leaders, as realistic people, particularly Bill, as a as a person that was not perfect and not only that but he had male needs that he had satisfied and he got caught for it you know now whether or not the whole situation was contrived doesn't make a shit of difference you know but the simple fact of the matter is this this for me was among the motivations that i had was realizing that america's response to it or at least i shouldn't say america the public response to it both around the world, around me, and uh, and on the internet, was childish. And that, for me, just really kind of drew me back. I mean, here I am, 3031 at the time this happened, and, and here I am seeing a public and uproar about, you know, about this. And I'm sitting there going, Jesus, you know, I mean, tw 10 years ago, I had an affair with a married chick and everything, and she fucking, you know, it was, uh, the husband almost went ballistic on us. Now, I understand that, you know, from one perspective and everything that's wrong, but the way I look at it is, I'm not into monogamy myself. Um, I, if I had my druthers, I'd actually be a bigamist, and I would have actually asked Kenna and Rachel and Jackie and all of them to marry me and everything. You know, and at this point in my life, I can come up with a system where that's perfectly fair. And I truly believe it and everything. You know, so I, I guess what I'm saying with all this is, um, you know, it, it came down to when I started seeing some of these things happen with the, the attempt to basically undermine people that were in um, higher up positions. You know, whether or not it was a world leader, you know, such as uh, Bill Clinton, um, who was the other one? Tony Blair uh, over in the UK, all the way to, you know, it could be, um, oh, one of my favorites, Britney Spears. You know, now these people, uh, sure, Britney Spears is a different person and everything than a leader like that, but the fact of the matter is she's still representing the American public through her music. You know, so in a case like this, where you have somebody like this as being fucking harassed, not just harassed, but fucking harassed on a regular basis by paparazzi and everything, you know, just to actually get a photo of her going fucking ballistic, you know, at her ex-boyfriend or whatever it is, because he ends up taking the kids from her, you know, and all we're seeing is the absolute worst possible moment in somebody's life, and this makes media around the world... At that point, that, t that started telling me there's something seriously wrong 
with this country. You know, and uh, I mean, it wasn't because of Britney Spears. This actually happened afterwards. But I, I had come to believe that there's something seriously wrong with this country when it comes down to the media and everything. And I started having this belief back in about, uh, about the time that things happened with bin Laden. That we, as a country, need to get better control of this, of this country's media. You know, or, you know, find a different way to actually handle things and everything. You know, grow up, mature a little bit, understand the world a little bit better. Well, you know, so for me, it's, um, I've come to realize that uh, there's a lot of hands that are in the pie. You know, I've traveled around the world. I've actually gotten to see things and everything. But um, there's some things that, uh, that, that people said, such as, such as Gore, such as Bush, that made me start seriously thinking. Rather than make them wrong, why not question my own understanding of how things function? And then take the time to uh, take the time to find a way to make them right. That intellectually, I think, is something a lot tougher to do. You know, when you actually have an opinion or an idea or maybe a an unquestioned fact about something and how something's actually done. You know, for me, the internet was um, a series of connections. You know, between servers and routers and that kind of stuff that uh, that had switches in between, and these connections were more or less they were you know hard coded you know so my name for my domain that i ended up getting www.brilliant.com <gasps> translated to an ip and that ip was to a server over in uh, over in scottsdale through godaddy and in order to be able to reach that server you had to jump through several different routers to be able to get to that endpoint and everything well that's actually one thing I started realizing was if if there's something called the internet out there in reality and George Bush is actually a very smart man and he is too that's the thing this is unquestioned I'm sure he's definitely stuck his foot in his mouth sometimes and everything you know haven't we all but the fact of the matter is George Bush actually ended up you know making a comment that Maybe he had a different perspective of seeing reality. And maybe there's things he understood about reality that I myself didn't. And I assume superiority simply because of my education, personal education and, and training and everything. But I had, had never assumed, never even considered that he knew more. That there's a that there's a possible way that uh, that he knew things about this world that I myself didn't, you know, and that maybe just maybe that was a calculated slip. So I started thinking about that from that perspective. So what does he mean when he says internet plural? What does he mean? Now ARPANET, here's a little history about the internet. The internet was started in the late 60s uh, as an uh, experiment by the Department of Defense uh, creating something called ARPANET. And ARPANET itself um, worked uh, to basically correlate activities between military institutions and research education facilities that were actually handling a lot of stuff, uh, the research work for the military. So it created a way to facilitate research and information exchange um, at a rapid basis and everything between the institutions and also the, the government that was actually supplying them the money to be, able to be able to achieve the things that they did. So this coordinated thing, you know, um, was created ARPNET, 
and ARPANET itself was the, the backbone, the, fun, the fundamental underlying of actually what ended up uh, becoming the modern day internet. Now, um, through a series of exchanges and everything, as the as the internet grew, uh, what ended up happening was uh, there's also something called IPv6 versus IPv4. Now, the internet itself, from my particular perspective, up until the point that I actually started questioning internet versus internets, um, the internet was an all-inclusive network that encompassed uh, computer systems around the world. And when I uh, went to went to go hit a system over at uh, Intel or MIT or the Army or um, the NSA or any of these facilities, uh, I can access those, those systems, at least uh, the servers and the they're called endpoints. The endpoints on these systems and everything by basically doing a DNS translation. It's a domain name service translation from the name to the IP or to the IP directly. And at that point, that's like an address on the, uh, on, in a house, for a house. And that actually allows me to access that house directly. Well, I had, um, I had naively believed that there was only one version of this out there, you know, that uh, that the extensiveness of this network and everything, and when I type in www.microsoft.com, uh, there's only one Microsoft.com. Until all of a sudden I started paying a little bit more attention to the media sources on the internet and that kind of stuff. I started paying attention to the phrasing and the terminology and that kind of stuff. I started paying attention to concepts such as the holographic universe. Um, by Michael Tabbitt that's a wonderful book if you haven't read it um, I read it back in the 1980s and the position that it presents is that the universe is a hologram that it's a simulation well I mean if you want to look at the, the constant of speed of light and how it becomes constant and everything that could be some evidence you know to support that theory and everything but to be, um, to be a little bit more logical and rational, I ended up taking a little step back from this. Um, I ended up realizing that if I, if I looked at, at, the, at the information that was provided on media alone, um, I realized that this can be a huge, massive campaign coming from many varied, um, or from potentially what looked like many varied sources, what can actually only be one source. I realized this, you know, so when I heard George Bush say the internet's plural, when I see IP variations on the movie Swordfish um, that actually put our, our in ranges that uh, extend well above and beyond the ranges that are actually capable by the hardware that I, I have in my world. Uh, basically, the the IP range itself is uh, from, is uh, it's 8 bits. So it's 2 to... 2 times 2, 4 times 2, I'm going to do the math here, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256. So it's basically 2 to the 8th power and uh, times 4. You got four different uh, possibilities and di different variations and everything that can actually comprise a, an IP here in my world. And that IP is an address, and that address is actually what's used to be able to access computers around the world, in particular through the World Wide Web. 
So translation is done when you type in www.microsoft.com or www.youtube.com or, or www.gmail.com. That translation's done to an IP, and that IP will be in the range of 2 to the 8th power dot 2 to the 8th power dot 2 to the 8th power. Uh, make sure we've got three dots there. Dot 2 to the 8th power. So any number in between those ranges. So it could be like, oh, here's one for instance. It could be 243.15.6.7. You know, that could be one IP. I'm just pulling that one out of my ass. One common IP is 127.0.0.1. That actually, that's something called a loopback, which basically tells your computer to send it right back to itself and everything so you can actually test out the connection or whether you might have services that you're running and everything on that local computer and everything. But generally speaking, the entire internet, at least as I had believed it up until this point is predicated on this whole two to the eighth um, times four system and everything. This is called IPv4. IPv4. Now, I at this point um, I had been getting evidence in, you know, to suggest this wasn't the only configuration of the internet. You know, um, now this in, this information was coming in through media sources. You know, and like I said, it was through George Bush uh, making his comment about internets. It was about Al Gore making his comment about uh, him inventing the internet. Um, it was about uh, concepts of um, the Matrix and and considering that there could be different versions of of the world out there, and that uh, my world may not necessarily have the same version of the internet and the same IP range as other versions of the internet um, out there. Um, it could be seeing people access the internet in a TV show like, uh, um, I don't know, let's let's say uh, Supernatural, one of my favorite shows that I, wa I watch regularly, or uh, CSI. You know, if you watch the way that they surf the net and if you actually type in some of the URLs, um, the URLs, the www dot type stuff and everything, or Supergirl or the Flash or something like that, you'll never see those uh, those web or you rarely see those websites in the real world and that kind of stuff. So, for me, um, through fictional references and through non-fictional references, I had been receiving evidence. Uh, like in Swordfish, you know, I would see IP that would range in the neighborhood of 998.757.4. Four hundred and thirty-two dot two hundred and fifty-nine. You know, well, that's an impossible IP range, and I saw this all over the place on different TV shows. It wasn't just you know a movie like Swordfish. It was different TV shows that I would see it on. Um, Mr. Robot's a great example. I would see it on Mr. Robot. Um, I think I saw it on Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot was probably one of the most uh, most um, authentic hacking ones I've ever seen, but. Um, but anyways, most TV shows, and uh, if not um, every TV show and movie, would show IP ranges that would have a lot higher IP range. And at least in my world, this just isn't possible. So anyways, I, I started seeing these things and just basically saying, okay, you know, the whole movie magic type thing. Um, back in the 1980s, 1970s, um, every number was prefixed with 555-whatever. Well, 555-whatever is a number that's actually put out there, you know, for specific, uh, for companies that, you know, don't, uh, they, they're basically, they're not in business, or, you know, for, nobody could use those numbers, 555-numbers. So the phone company itself literally segments these things for fictional type, type work and that kind of stuff.
So I've got a couple guys behind, or three guys behind me. So I'm gonna break out my stick and everything. So, anyways, um, no. So the uh, the thing for me was, uh, you know, once I started seeing these things and I started seeing these anomalies, I really did start questioning, you know, the premise of what George Bush said. You know, why why would they go through and uh, make a comment like this? You know, the internet. Um, you know, Al Gore making a comment that he ended up in, in, in inventing. You know, the internet. All these things weren't making sense. You know, until all of a sudden I started saying, wait a second. Rather than going along with the rest of the community and everything, why not find a way to mentally make it right? What is it all saying? So once I started going down that thought process, I started thinking about matrix type stuff, and I started really, you know, coming to the conclusion that um, that there are different internets, you know. But um, is was there definitive proof though? Well, no. I mean, it can certainly all big be one big huge you know conspiracy coming through media sources and the media sources directed directly at me in order to basically influence this type of situation and everything you know but what other possibilities are there here so this actually had me diving back into um, and this comes down to the whole idea of a discrete reality you know so if you look in the matrix and you look at uh, neo from his perspective and everything the reality that he's in in 1999 is um, he considers it to be absolute. You know, now he ends up discovering something about the Matrix, and at this point, he unplugs from it to basically find another reality where this more quote unreal or this more real reality actually has a uh, you know it has some things in it that um, suggest that this is you know that the other reality is more real. It's more hellish. You know, so why he would actually accept that reality over the hellish, the more hellish one that he ended up, uh, quote, uh, you know, that he ended up escaping to, is beyond me. You know, that didn't make make much sense and everything. You know, but I I started thinking about what they're doing with the mind. You know, so in the Matrix, he sees one particular version of reality. You know, and all of a sudden when he ends up getting out. His mind, in a way. No, no. Thanks, so. Guy asked me if I wanted to smoke. So, at at this point, it's just um. Hold on a second. I'm, I've said this before, I'm back here in the back of the park, and it's just a little bit weird when three guys come to hang out. I mean, it's not, I mean, at least at 11 o'clock at night or something, or 10 o'clock at night like it is and everything. It's just like, why? Why here? <sighs> Anyways, mine is not to question why, unless, uh, but I carry a big stick just in case. So, anyways, um going back to this, it's just, um, so if what happens with, with Neo and the Matrix is real, let's just, uh, let's just make the assumption that it's not for now. Make it a little bit easier. Uh, a couple, couple years ago, I started asking a, a question about the fundamental nature of where consciousness lies. 
So when I perceive this thing, I call reality around me. And uh, the, the information I get from it, the stimulus, the weed smoke that I don't like um, that's coming drifting across my campsite and tent and everything, um, all the way to, you know, the occasional gas bomb I'm letting off myself and everything that smells like that, um, all the way to seeing the cop or talking on this device and everything. All of this is, it, it's basically, it exists as a discrete perspective of reality to me. Meaning, when I see um, something, I touch the wall, um, I'm talking and hearing my own voice, I'm seeing trees, I'm hearing sound. This all is, is happening on, on a dis discrete basis. It's information that's coming to me, and it's, uh, I'm not seeing multiples of things. I'm seeing one thing and one thing only, and it's coming to me in a way that basically, I'm going to see where these fools went. Where'd they go? Okay, they're down there. Good. So, if you're going to analogize this to the computer, uh, computer game I play, so when I play a computer game, that's occurring in a discrete way. You know, I see the screen. That screen is interpreted for me um, and played and pushed onto, you know, the, the program itself goes through the processes of execution. It displays to me a character on the screen that I can move around in a discrete fashion. And that discrete fashion is, is basically if somebody else has a computer playing the same game next to me, and maybe it's the same world that's next to me and everything, um, what they are experiencing is not going to be one and the same thing as I'm experiencing. So their discrete perspective into a world is, is different than mine. Now, the, the analog itself is the sum total of all discrete possibilities. Now, I, what I'm going to say with this is um, while I, I receive the equivalent of what, what feels like and, and appears to be a discrete experience from the world around me. It itself is an analog. You know, so I'm receiving information that can be potentially more discrete in nature than it is more analog, and other things that are actually more analog in nature than they are discrete. So here's a for instance. If you remember the TVs that actually were out in the 1970s, 1980s, 19, even 1990s and before, you know, that uh, the big, huge cathode ray tubes and that kind of stuff, um, these TVs th themselves would often have a problem with ghosting. Well, ghosting, it's my opinion, is the actual receipt of information from alternate realities. When, you're, when you receive a ghost, you're receiving a signal itself that actually originates from alternate realities themselves. Now, as we've gotten more refined with our technology and everything, we've gotten away from the, the capability to be able to be to ghost. You know, we've gotten away from seeing the ghosting type stuff and everything. We can actually target deliver stuff better because we understand collectively 
um, where each person's consciousness resides and how to deliver content specifically to them, you know, to you, to me, and everything in a very discrete mechanistic way and everything. But this doesn't mean that all information that comes in is strictly discrete in nature. You know, so when you use your senses, when you break away from those discrete devices, you know, whether or not it's a phone that listens to an iPod or an iPod that, I'm sorry, that, uh, that you're listening to music on or you're watching TV or a movie through, um, through a computer screen or through a digital TV or something like that, all those different things that are receiving information in a discrete way still receive information in an analog fashion. So this goes back to the whole concept of, of the internets. There's plural, multiple versions of the internet out there. And from my reality and from my personal perspective and everything, I can at any time see and experience parts of those different realities by altering my brain chemistry. So whether or not that's through the use of drugs, whether or not that's through the use of alcohol, I am in a literal sense reprogramming my mind to shift it in an analog fashion to be able to perceive reality in a different discrete fashion than it was before, in a different analog fashion. You know, so that's actually, uh, you know, my personal explanation of why is it when I ended up, um, you know, doing basalts um, that I ended up seeing different uh, television shows. I had one time I remember seeing Simon Cowell actually on the screen, you know, and somebody's actually making a comment about, uh, you know, how they ended up um, saving the world and they ended up doing this stuff. And I remember Sam Simon Cowell's response. Yeah, we've all been there. We've all done that before. Now show me what you have for your talent. You know, it was one of those things that was just like, well, that was bizarre. You know, I mean, it, it comes down to the hallucinations. Um, I started realizing that the hallucinations aren't necessarily not real. They're just basically like my mind switching a channel. You know, so if my mind has the capability to be able to, in a in an analog way, to shift itself into alternate perspectives of the world and everything, you know, at, at that point I started realizing that there's different versions of the internet out there. There's a different version of, of Earth where Gore actually did create the internet. And that we may have received his comment here in order to basically educate us about what reality is. And some people might just mock him and you know, continue mocking him, basically not understanding that you know, this is one perspective of reality. And, you know, while in our reality it may not match our historical records and everything, that doesn't make it real or not real. It just makes it an alternative perspective. Sure, the guy could be, you know, full of shit and everything. You know, but there's also another perspective to the story, too. You know, if you take the time and you stop mocking people and you start taking the time to understand, you know, what they're saying and why they're saying it, you know, and maybe there's something to be learned from this, too. I think you could find out a lot about the universe and everything. So, anyways, um, what, I, what I discovered about the whole discrete versus analog nature of reality was, um, well, basically that uh, the world as I know it 
is is formed of a collision, a collusion and a collision for all intents and purposes, of a holographic universe and an analog one. So at any given time, um, I have two-dimensional things that are cropping up, you know, imagery, you know, through the iPhone, um, sounds and that kind of stuff that are actually coming in into my world in a two-dimensional way. You know, but I also have three-dimensional information that's being received as well that are actually c creating the dynamic, uh, dynamicness of my world and everything. You know, so sure, something might be more, um, more discreet in nature than it is analog in nature. And I think that's part of the reason that me and Amy didn't last as long as we did. You know, um, she was more discreet in nature. You know, she didn't necessarily belong in my world. You know, and as a result, you know, the marriage ended up lasting a year. And for me, what I saw as a, as a bad decision and everything was just a, as a direct result of a collision, you know, between an analog reality, mine, and her discrete reality, where she wasn't necessarily a good fit with my, my discrete reality. Now, I had a reason for wanting to bring this up today, and um, it, it just comes down to the, the nature of, of reality and time itself. You know, the things that I've seen, at least in, you know, from my limited perspective, and I do feel it's limited based on some of the beings I'm aware of that exist out there. That, that time relative to me and time relative to everything else that uh, is around me and everything may flow at different rates of speeds of, um, and different measures altogether. That the events that I see that constitute my world and the importance of those events and everything may not, be, um, may not even ever be shared by anybody else. You know, so 9-11, for instance. It's my belief that a lot of people didn't see that event happening. Um, now, for me, it was critical. You know, it's critical because it, 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 it gave me a reason to basically make the choice to actually join the military and, and after that, join the, uh, the NSA afterwards. But it also helped me understand um, that holograms themselves were real. You know, that, uh, that I mean, because the planes were projected, at least in my reality, they were projected. The building itself, the Twin Towers, they were brought down through controlled explosions, controlled demolitions seen it a million times anyways how many times have you seen buildings fall uh, fall straight down that are hit from the side it just doesn't happen you know so it's basically conspiracies are real that's not a bad thing or a good thing kind of makes life fun you know look for better conspiracies that's kind of the moral of that story you know you want a, a more interesting conspiracy start paying attention to dan brown you know, um, start paying attention to the Bible. Start paying attention to some of the some of the things that present supernatural type stuff and everything. Start reading up on history and you know, was it Hitler's pursuit of the occult towards the end of his reign and everything? All that stuff is indicative of find better facts. Find more fun facts. The more fun that you can find, you know, the more the more interesting life can be. That's the way I look at it. You know, the more, the more interesting you make your mysteries and, you know, the more, more you choose to believe in these things and try to, try to convince other people to believe in them too, the more interesting and, you know, potentially entertaining life can be. That's, that's just my walk away from it. You know, so, yeah, that's why I'm in trying to invent my own conspiracy. 
you know, and I won't say it's a conspiracy, it's just my belief, you know. Um, there's discrete mechanisms that I can actually shape and mold the flow of energy that actually in turn, it's like, I, I've mentioned this before a couple times, is like that pebble in the pond which can actually go in predictable directions from where it, from where it comes out. And those predictable directions that it can go out you know, can actually cause massive influences after doing it enough times. You know, it's like that, um, I, like to, I like to think about, you know, the whole um, water system that actually occurs on this planet. You know, when it rains, it rains in the mountains typically first and snows up there. And when that snow melts, it ends up coming down and the rain trickles down off the side of the, that mountain to eventually gather in something called, uh, you know, creeks and streams. And eventually it gets to the point of creating waters, which after a while, it, it cuts entire pathways through, you know, through the, uh, you know, through the... Um, the hills and everything down below until it actually goes all the way down to the ocean and at that point once it hits the ocean it might travel a little bit but at that point it's going to get recycled and go right back up to the top of that mountain and everything now you have that same process going on enough time and not only can that you know does that create predictable erosion and everything but it's also part of what forms you know forms these mountains to begin with you know that sediment um when it when it you know th that rain is soaked up it's it's pulling with it you know through evaporation and everything it's pulling material and that material in a lot of cases actually does build the mountains shapes them it shapes the entire fucking planet and everything so given enough time when it uh, gets high enough and everything at that point that whole process of recycling you know, goes and goes and goes. Well, the same thing holds true for people. If you tell somebody the same thing over and over enough at that point, in a general sense, they, they tend to be programmed accordingly. Well, that's, that's how media is currently functioning. It's basically trying to tell this country that uh, we're at war and that we're at a continued state of war, you know, and that terrorism, that kind of stuff and everything, and the shootings and that kind of shit is happening on a consistent basis, and basically every sucker is actually biting onto this hook, line, and sinker, believing it's all happening. Well, at that point, what it's doing is it's actually creating and affecting our collective consciousness. It is, in fact, directly responsible for creating these events, for, in a literal sense, creating the people. Because you yourselves, we ourselves, don't fully understand the power of the collective mind and how it, in a literal sense, creates people to create the things that we're actually being exposed to in media on a collective basis. So when you hear about a shooting or something like that, you know, my, my first uh, thing I would say is, don't fucking believe it. You know, if you're really that interested in believe, believing that the world is that bad around you, you know, why? I mean, that's the big thing I've got to question. Why? Are you really that bored? I mean, do you really want to see death and destruction that badly? And if you don't, then let's think of a better way, you know, together. You know, let's, let's think of something else we could do in this future and everything together. Well, I've already thought of something. You know, for me, it was just basically, it comes down to, I've never seen ever in all of media a sexually lewd reality. You know, and how that would function. 
you know, we're basically it's just like we're sex is something. It's just it's it's something that's normal, shared among everybody, well, almost everybody. Where it's no big deal. Where nudity is something that just happens that you know somebody hey it feels like I'm going into the office naked today. Sure, it's different, and sure it sounds perverted, but what's more, what what would you rather have? You know, the shootings and the violence and the nastiness that continues to litter media that I myself don't believe in, but you collectively tend to be able to override me consistently, making this shit to come true in your reality? Eh, I veto that reality. That, that ain't mine. You know, that's why I'm heading off in my own, my own direction, my own world. You know, because in a discreet fashion, I can do that. You know, my mind does not have to belong to this collective reality. The measures of time and everything that I've been taught throughout my life, the physics, the calculus, and all that kind of stuff that actually make up the world, the programming, you know, the functions and all that kind of stuff, which actually make up, you know, design for evolution and for trees and for city life and behavior of people and, you know, the traffic patterns and that kind of stuff that actually manage the air fl- the flow of people around this world and that kind of stuff. I can manage it all. I mean, this isn't, you know, arrogance or anything like that speaking. It's just basically me saying, your reality sucks, you know, as you're presenting it on this media. And you're acting like you're a victim of it. Well, I mean, that's not that much different than me acting like I'm a victim of homelessness. Which I am. However... I'm constantly trying to do something about it, and the constantly trying to do something about it doesn't mean returning to the same patterns I was using before, you know, and I, and I think that's kind of the problem that society has right now. Society has a wonderful ten- tendency to basically say, hey, let's leverage the same thought processes, the same, mecha- same mental attitude, you know, of ostracization, you know, and isolation of those that are actually committing the felonies against society. You know, and when I'm talking about felonies, I'm not talking about um, literal crimes like, you know, rape and that kind of shit. I'm talking about, uh, you know, more of the people that uh, commit um, acts of mental, um, mentally separating yourself from reality. I, here's, here's all I'm saying in a general sense. You know, for me... Um, I've got a, a, a reality that I'm designing. You know, um, I've watched Star Trek for long enough. Um, Terminator. I've watched uh, Doctor Who and all that kind of stuff and everything. And I basically said, look, I'm going to take it all. I'm going to mix it up. And I'm going to basically become the king, um, the dictator of my own um, reality that's going to be featuring largely robotic beings. Because I know most humans are, prob- are probably going to want to take, take part in my reality. You know, so my reality and you know the goal is isn't necessarily is to break free from war is to break free from the whole concept of you know that you have to have you know some people that are suffering you know on a regular basis that you have to have um, some degree of violence and everything that occurs and and all that kind of stuff no I'm not interested in that you, you know, the larger collective reality can take that you know that's that seems to be their thing, and that's that's all I'm exposed to on TV, and you know that kind of stuff when it comes down to it. And 
you know, so I'm looking for new options when it comes down to like Sabrina and that kind of stuff. Um, but I, but I'm also hoping that uh, I quit hearing about other stuff, and I also quit seeing some of the ghetto stuff around me. You know, it comes down to the discrete nature of the way that I perceive the world. You know, if Neo in the Matrix wasn't aware of his surroundings and everything, you know, in, in this fictional reality called the Matrix and everything, well, my mind in a feedback loop creates the reality around me. You know, it is nothing more than an interpretation of thought processes and ideas and a translation from whatever's surrounding me, you know, to a model that I've actually created in my own mind. Well, I mean, I'm in the process of, of reprogramming that model. Now, I like the idea of, of actually taking a model like Star Trek and, and working towards a, a, a prettier, um, potentially more utopian type society where people appreciate education a little bit more, where society is built on um, and honors those that have actually gone and pursued education and not only that, but also think about science fiction fantasy type stuff and want to work within environments like holodecks and you know things like that and aren't happy just basically I, or that are, are happier I should say in the process of exploration um, there's going to be different cultures involved you know, the, uh, the necessity to appreciate different perspectives and everything and understand that you're going to have some cultures and some people that um, aren't going to have, you know, relationships in the same way that, uh, that a lot of humans expect. I remember one of them was a uh, Talaxian inside uh, Star Trek and um, his Voyager. And the Talaxians, they have, um, what, three, four different wives. Down in Mexico, I ended up meeting a guy that uh, he ended up giving me a a ride. I was hitchhiking from for a year from uh, Tijuana down to uh, Panama and back and on the way back I ended up uh, coming across a Hispanic guy that uh, ended up taking me from Mazatlan uh, to about a hundred miles away from the border and uh, along the way I got to meet two of his eight wives and also uh, stay in uh, two of his eight houses and he ended up affording these eight houses and everything by, uh, by the work that he did. Um, most of the wives knew about each other. They were just happy that they ended up having a place and everything. And not only that, but, you know, they had families that they were raising, and they just, uh, they all seemed sedate and seemed kind of happy with the, the way life was and everything. You know, so from a discrete perspective, you know, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say with all this is the thing that I've realized over time is my reality isn't necessarily one and the same as everybody else's. And we hear hints of this all the time. You know, so, and for the most part, I think I've spent most of my life actually blowing this off, not believe, or not, not believing in how profound those differences are, until I really started paying attention, you know, and then all of a sudden I started realizing, wait a second, you know, if, if I, instead of choosing to dismiss somebody just because they seem crazy, you know, or just because they believe something that doesn't make sense to me or something like that. You know, if I choose to dismiss that, I'm missing one of the, what I consider to be one of the most awesome opportunities 
to be able to learn different perspectives and not only that but also to potentially discover some fascinating alternatives to the way I've been living my life and magic is exactly one of them my ex-girlfriend ended up haphazardly um, introducing me to the concept that it was real just in her own weird ways I mean, I came to respect her because of her big tits and her, uh, and her funny, playful attitude and everything. But there was so much more to it than that. Seeing some of these homeless people, it's um, disheartening. You know, because I, I often wonder now, is this how they see themselves? Or... Is it just my mind and the way it had been programmed? And this is the translation my own mind has because it, it hasn't fully swallowed, you know, my new belief system. And that, um, that there's certain people to be appreciated just simply because of the fact that they do think and see the world differently than me. And my mind just poorly interprets and creates an image based on my previous method of judging people. There's also another another possibility too. Maybe the collective mind of the world around me has censored me and censored what I see in so much as it actually provides this image for me because this is not collectively deemed appropriate and this is the hard measures that this world uses in order to dictate to somebody how that person should look at the world. Now, if that's the case, and I'm starting to lean towards that being the case, that the world itself is actually dictating the images of what I see of other people, you know, particularly homeless people that I otherwise might find valuable in their own way, and it's the only way that it can interpret this information is by basically making them as appalling as possible. That for me is an atrocious way for this society to deal with things. To basically alienate me from the things that could be potentially the most interesting to me by basically making them appear as absolutely ghetto as possible. As confrontational, as ugly as possible. And here's uh, here's what I'm saying. It's my belief that um, that we innately, uh, most of us, are are emotional creatures. Um, that to some degree, there's some points in our lives, particularly as eternal or immortal beings and everything, where um, we revert back to a non-emotional state. And that non-emotional state is probably more discreet than it is analog. And uh, it's basically there for information acquisition. It's there to basically explore the world, to learn about the possibilities. Um, and, and I'm not saying this is always the truth or anything like this. I'm just saying it's my assumption that when, when I get to the point of being bored, and I suspect others are like this too, um, with society and with the world, then we have a tenant, or I have a tendency to revert back to a discreet and, and potentially more um, or less emotional way of dealing with life and everything. And as a result, 
I tend to receive what I consider to be um, information based on the influences of the image that's, that had been provided to me by society. That's a horribly convoluted way of actually saying what I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of a better way to put this. Okay. Let's look at each society in isolation. China, India, uh, United Kingdom, Romania, Bulgaria, um, Russia. Each one of us has, a, has collective mechanisms at work that actually manage, in my opinion, um, manage time itself. So the flow of time is relative to the country that you're in. And this isn't just through um, time zones and that kind of stuff. It's basically, um, and it's also, it, it can be down to the city. So here, here in uh, Los Angeles, it's a well-known belief system and everything that, that Los Angeles tends to move a little bit faster than some of these sleepy communities and everything. And that's because the relative sense of time literally flows differently. So if you can actually put the two side by side and actually measure the number of events and the types of events that happen, because there's fewer minds participating in an economy within a, uh, a small community versus a large community, what happens is the literal flow of time and little literal... Um, limit limitation on number of events that can happen um, actually causes less to be simulated in a subconscious and collective way for smaller places and smaller communities than it does for bigger communities. Now this actually comes out in the flow of time and also the makeup and, uh, and the possibilities that are actually existing for that particular place and that culture and, and that city and that kind of stuff. So, wh what this means in uh, plain English is cultures themselves, you know, such as um, India, such as China, um, we see them in one particular fa fashion or everything. Uh, but just because we see them in one fashion does not mean that, we, that they see themselves in the same fashion. What we're receiving is an interpretation between two different realities. Well, it's my belief that India sees itself as being 400 years in the future. Um, potentially even more, you know. So they're from the year 2400 all the way to 2600. They believe technologically that they are actually far superior in the United States and everything. Not understanding that, in part, technology is based on the mind as well, and that that uh, while we may not have adopted as much physical material technology, we we certainly have actually um, progressed further intellectually, um, at least in in projects of the mind and everything than we have other countries. You know, so there's this misnomer, this misguided belief out there, at least that I've learned collectively, that just because you may be further ahead in time, um, along a linear timeline, that, uh, that, that, that means that you are more advanced technologically um, altogether than in contrast to other civilizations and everything. And that's not the truth. That's simply not the truth. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that a, a country or a company or um, an entity could progress technologically faster, and it has absolutely nothing to do with mo uh, with maturity. It has everything to do with the fact that uh, they may learn differently, they may soak in information um, differently. Machine learning itself has a tendency to basically take in information without actually processing and understanding where it came from. And as a result, you could potentially get the influence and the appearance of actually learning information and, and actually growing as a civilization faster when this in itself is an illusion. 
it's not necessarily happening like a, like that illusion portrays. So what I've learned from a discrete perspective and everything is the discrete view of I have of reality and everything, and, and this place and in, in point and in, in space and time and everything, isn't <laughs> really, it's probably almost never the same thing as what somebody else sees. And what I'm receiving is a translation. <coughs> it's nothing more than a translation between two different realities. An agreement, a collective agreement between two very different minds that we've learned to communicate through emotion. And that emotion itself gets translated to our respective realities by our own minds from emotion and interpreted in a discrete fashion. The analog is the emotion. The discrete is our interpretation, how we actually represent that emotion. Not just as a part of us, but a part of the world around us. I believe at all times that, uh, that whether or not you want to suppress your emotion and externalize it and point the finger at somebody else saying you're more emotional than me, that to some degree we all live in a state of various forms of disassociation of ourselves from ourselves. You know, you got mental disorders and everything that arise, you know, because of this whole desire to collectively separate yourself from as an individual or maybe even return to the collective and everything too but I guess that's all I'm trying to say is really it just comes down to emotion <sighs> I don't know where I was going with this again I just keep doing this uh, there's a song that uh, comes on that um, in the movie Groundhog Day, every day that Bill Murray wakes up, put your little hands on mine, baby, you'll be mine. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Well, lately that's been playing over at uh, Starbucks on a regular basis. Um, about five, five to six thirty, I walk to the bathroom. And the same guy walks out of the bathroom every time. I don't time it intentionally. But he walks out. And at pretty much the same time I do. Every time I come back here, it's the same thing. Set up my tent. Talking to the podcast. And if I wasn't talking to the podcast, it'd be kicking back eating my sunflower seeds, but I've been trying to uh, curtail that because it uh, hurts my tooth doing it too much. <sighs> In any case, it's just... Um, I do believe that the world around me it is a discrete creation created by me for me. But that discrete creation is certainly influenced by others, other minds. And those other minds could be altering and shaping and 
superimposing their their beliefs and belief patterns in my reality. It's not that I'm trying to escape that. I'm just trying to find better ways at balancing it and taking control of it. You know, in part through magic and the concepts of that and watching that stuff. Maybe embracing the whole concept of uh, an imaginary friend and trying to superimpose a a discrete form of somebody that can exist in a multitude. AKA a woman I used to uh, used to go out with and everything. Oh. Working with computers too long. Or maybe not long enough, not knowing how to actually translate it to the outside world. Oh, maybe that's what I'm looking for help on. You ever get the feeling that you're that you're just about there. And it's just like one tiny little thing that will help you understand things just a little bit more, but for some reason you just can't can't reach it. That's how I'm feeling lately. Feels like there's something. Something I'm just not seeing. Something I'm just not understanding. I'm blind to something for some reason. Anyways. Thank you for listening as usual.